0: Recovery Machine, episode 15. I'm your host, Corey, and I'm here with co-host Nathan uh, and a special guest. Welcome, Nathan, first of all.
1: oh, well, hello there, Corey. I'm going to uh, refer to you as Corey Williams, maybe, or uh, I'm going to have to figure this out because our guest's name is Corey Ranger, spelled the same way.
2: Hello, Corey. Hi. How's everyone <laughs> doing today? We're
1: thank good. Thank thanks. For
2: having How are me? you? Yeah. I'm doing great.
1: Thanks for doing this. I know you've, uh, you've got quite the schedule going there, so we will uh, try to be as efficient as possible with your time. Uh, so I guess if you could uh, maybe start by giving us a, a little rundown of your, uh, your career, where you started as a, as a nurse, and how you got into uh, harm reduction, how you got into that field.
2: Absolutely. Uh, so yeah, my name name's Corey. I'm a registered nurse. Uh, I uh, have been working in harm reduction for almost 10 years now uh, and started off by doing my final preceptorship in nursing school at a place called Streetworks in Edmonton's downtown core embedded within the Boyle Street co-op. Uh, and getting to learn from incredible people like Marlis Taylor and Erica Schoen. Um, And then when my nursing practicum completed, I was fortunate enough to move right into a role with them. uh, And I completed a a temporary bloodborne pathogens project that focused on working with people who were homeless and either HIV or hep C co-infected or or co-infected with both Uh, And then when I completed that project, I moved to Calgary, where I worked on the harm reduction team for Alberta Health Services, uh, and at the STI clinic, Uh, later on moving back to southern Alberta, where I did a whole number of fun things, including starting up an HIV program in Brooks, uh, the take home naloxone project in Medicine Hat. Uh, And then was working on supervised consumption services in Medicine Hat before the Alberta government changed and they permanently froze funding to our site. Uh, During that time, I also was an instructor at Medicine Hat College for a nursing program. Um, And when the big changes happened in Alberta, uh, my partner and I decided that it was time to move back to uh, Vancouver Island, where I was born and raised. Uh, and I came in right before the pandemic started and was working for the PC government on a provincial training tool for people with lived and living experience of uh, drug use and mental health and um, when the pandemic took hold I took a leave of absence from that job and started working in the homeless encampments in Victoria and everything has been off the rails since uh, it's been a very much um, Roller coaster ride of working within the context of COVID nineteen and overdose, and most recently have been uh, working to implement uh, uh, safe supply programming for people who are at risk of overdose by the toxic drug supply.
1: Yeah, that's a great opener.
2: <laughs> Suppose you ask why I got into this, um, which is a little bit of an interesting story, and in the fact that I actually came into nursing school with some pretty. Uh, terrible preconceived notions about substance use and had grown up in a considerably conservative household. Uh, And it wasn't until I did my clinical placement with community health uh, and was working with people who experience homelessness and people who use drugs uh, and getting to learn from them and hear their stories that I realized everything that I thought I knew was wrong. And uh, the reason why I went to street was to continue to try and challenge those, those biases and have never looked back.
1: Completely understandable and relatable. I uh, find myself in the same position where I've been, uh, looking at this, uh, the field of addiction and, uh, especially as it pertains to healthcare professionals. And I find myself thinking that I've got it figured out one day only to uh, have to reverse, uh, reverse my thought pattern and uh, go another way when, when new evidence comes forward. Um, and it seems that in our, at least with our government, that is something that uh, is not an easy thing to get them to do. And it uh, is not something they do quickly, not that they do very many things quickly, but this one seems to be particularly tedious we see when we were uh, researching, we saw that you, your name pops up under a lot of different titles. So uh, I wonder how many of these things are, you know, kind of uh, remnants of things that you were doing, or if you're still actively, actively involved. Uh, we saw that uh, your name comes up as president of the Harm Reduction Nurses Association of Canada. Is that a, a title that is uh, still active?
2: I am currently the president of the Harm Reduction Nurses Association. Yes.
1: Okay, and what uh, can you tell our listeners what basically what that entails and what that organization is about?
2: Yeah, the Harm Reduction Nurses Association um, is an organization for uh, nurses who are working in the field of harm reduction, but also nurses uh, and associate members. So, you know, uh, people who work in healthcare, uh, people with lived and living experience, people who teach. Um, basically to develop stronger advocacy for drug policy revision, uh, to partner ourselves and to align ourselves with the people who are working in this field, who are working with lived and living experience and to make sure as nurses that we are listening and honoring and affirming and uplifting the voices of people who use drugs as we work in this sector. It should be about them, not about us. Uh, We work on uh, education and we Uh, complete monthly webinars and round tables where uh, nurses come in and share their experience working in a wide array of different projects and fields, whether it's um, practicing harm reduction in inpatient psychiatry or community based managed alcohol programs. Uh, we run roundtables as well, where we have more informal discussions am- amongst nurses about certain ideas or concepts and try to develop position statements so that we can um, be as strong as advocates as we can and always coming from the nurse perspective, which is really important. Um, we oftentimes are uh, people who are on the front lines of of this uh, toxic drug supply crisis, uh, like field medics trying to figure out uh, what's going to work and we make lots of observations and um, oftentimes don't get to be at the tables to share those observations or to help inform policy development or change.
1: Uh, So you're facilitating, you're you're basically trying to keep uh, the facilitation of current frontline knowledge heading in the right direction to people who are responsible for drug policy. Is that what I'm understanding there?
2: Absolutely, while also building capacity amongst nurses and offering opportunities for mentorship for nurses who are new in this field, offering solidarity because it, it often, you know, there's quite a bit of vicarious trauma that's experienced and how do we support each other. Um, also do work with, you know, nurses who have potentially landed themselves in trouble with substance use at work and trying to advocate for changes from the work safe perspective so that there isn't so much stigma. Uh, behind all of that, and yeah, it's a it's a great organization, and I encourage everyone to to check out our webpage and consider uh, getting a membership.
1: Yeah, I'll definitely look into that. That sounds uh, sounds like exactly the type of uh, communication and framework that we need,
0: Corey. Given that it's that it's a, a national uh, association, what is it like going province to province? I mean, the landscape is so different from. Within each province of Canada, within each region of of our province, so how do you how do you navigate that?
2: Absolutely. So our board is composed of you know there's Western, uh, you know Central Eastern representatives, and so there's intentional representation of major regions. Uh, and the 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 access to harm reduction, the differences in policies across provinces is quite stark. Uh, and oftentimes, you know, what happens in B.C. and what people see in B.C. Uh, doesn't even seem achievable if you're someone who's working in Alberta or if you're working under the Ford government in Ontario. Uh, and it's a constant reminder that a lot of the gains that we make in harm reduction don't actually feel permanent all the time because, Uh, despite there being strong evidence for for policy development to all move in one direction, this is one of the fields where it is chronically subjected to ideology and rhetoric as a form of evidence and a government's priorities can completely shift on the basis of an election and so can the funding models that come from there. So part of the work with HRNA is to hopefully build solidarity between those nurses and to share practice and to do knowledge exchange so that uh, we can attempt to move the needle forward and to support some of our provinces, support some of the nurses in provinces who who are experiencing that inequity at this point in time.
1: Yeah, yeah, wow. And it must take an incredible amount of patience. I can't imagine how many times you run into a wall and you just... Uh, uh, it, it, to me, it's staggering. The, 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 the approaches, some of the... Uh, uh, you know the tough love, the uh, the old school punitive. Um, you know we need more police on the ground type of thing. It doesn't seem to matter how much evidence is presented. These these old uh, ways of doing things seem to be embedded very much, like you say, in politics. And uh, and that in itself is unfortunate, but it, it is a reality. Uh,
2: something it's the same front- reason why it's the same reason why we don't have decrim right now. Governments know the harms of the war on drugs. They know that prohibition has driven the drug supply to the most dangerous heights that it's ever been. They're not stupid. They Mm -hmm. see that. But there's no political courage or appetite to actually change that because it's ultimately about voters. And oftentimes voters don't care about drug policy. That's not what's most important to them. Um, and, And it only becomes important when it touches you personally. Uh, We see that even with politicians who suddenly change their narrative, and it's because they've had someone close to them impacted by the toxic drug supply, and we need to stop waiting for everyone to have relatable experiences before we just give a shit about everybody who's dying right now.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well said. I think that's the same conclusion uh, we came to. Corey Williams is uh, that it was basically, like you said, the government. uh, They're they're well aware they're informed they have the same numbers as we do and um but it's uh it's political it would be a political disaster to try and you know tie that into any any sort of a run
0: yeah and i i guess uh, naively i think years ago i thought that that just in time that would change that that would get better and maybe it was just a, a, a misunderstanding of the politics of it, but it, it, doesn't, it hasn't worked in a linear fashion at all. In fact, in many ways, we're, we're further back.
2: Absolutely, like the Ontario government changed supervised consumption services to consumption and treatment services just because they needed to add treatment into the language as a means to satisfy their voting base. The Alberta government is now requiring people to provide healthcare numbers in order to access supervised consumption services, which anybody who knows anything about supervised consumption services knows that the anonymity is one of the biggest reasons people find it accessible to go there. And so they're actively pushing people out of these sites, and there's no evidence for it, there's no rational reason to support that kind of policy change, other than a honest disdain for people who use drugs
1: yeah 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 unfortunate but true Uh, i i wonder what you're seeing as far as uh i mean you probably have a very good idea of what's going on uh presently with safe supply probably across the country uh we noticed well uh today we were discussing just before the podcast i see that uh they've got a a uh, program that just started today for uh, a take home fentanyl prescription where a patient can uh, go in and uh, I, I guess they talk with a nurse, they discuss uh, dose and form, and then they're allowed to purchase fentanyl and take that home for consumption. Now, I don't, what I'm seeing and or what I'm hearing is often very different than what is actually being done. And all I know is that it's uh, right now, it's just one person, one person in BC <laughs> who is starting this uh, program. So I can't, we're, we're talking about how much pressure is on this poor guy not to screw it up. Um, but uh, I was wondering what you thought about that particular program and what you're seeing with, because they've been to- in BC, they've been kind of toting this. Yeah, we're doing safe supply, but in reality, it's not getting anywhere, it's not, uh, it's not really accessible.
2: Yeah, I mean I'm 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 happy to hop up on my soapbox right now and Go just say if you are not in British Columbia and you're looking over here and saying, "Oh my god, BC has a safe supply." In reality, we do not have a safe supply of drugs. We do not have a regulated and accessible and effective option to supplant the illegal drug supply to have a meaningful impact on overdose death rates. We have the makings of it. We have some early uh, starting points for it. And many of the ways in which it's being delivered currently is in a way that's super inaccessible for people. And so, truth be told, there's around 90,000 British Columbians at risk of overdose, maybe more, who are accessing the illegal drug supply. And the last estimates Mm -hmm. from the province was around 3,600 people who had accessed some form of a safe supply, which equates to exactly 4% of the people who may need it. The concentration of that uptake has been almost exclusively in Victoria and Vancouver's downtown east side, and then the ways in which the drugs have been provided have not been effective in actually uh, curbing someone's reliance on the illegal drug supply and ultimately reducing risk. When BC first rolled out uh, safe supply or risk mitigation guidance prescribing they did so uh, very wrongfully under the guise of COVID 19 prevention and so they came out with safe supply because they believed a lot of people who use drugs were going to get sick by COVID. they were going to need to isolate and while isolating they would not be able to access their regular drug supply and so they would provide uh, a prescription a short-term prescription of hydromorphone tablets that would help avoid experiences of withdrawal and dope sickness. And so, in that that entire framing, first, they connected safe supply to COVID-19. And what that means is that for someone who's going to prescribe a safe supply, they don't know if this is a permanent intervention. They don't know if when COVID ends, they'll still be allowed to prescribe safe supply. And so it gave it the air of impermanence, which if you're a doctor or a person who's able to offer this intervention, like a nurse practitioner, uh, there's ethics behind starting someone on an intervention that you don't know if you can actually maintain. And what are you going to do if you have to cut them off? So much harm has been done by deprescribing across the country and in, in, in all of North America, people die from deprescribing and forced tapering. And so that immediately threw some some trepidation in prescribers' hands. But then they framed it as a withdrawal management tool. And in essence, what that meant is they were saying safe supply is treatment. And safe supply is not treatment. Safe supply is meant to be about agency of choice and about people having the right to know what they're putting in their bodies and the ability to access that full stop. But when they framed it as a withdrawal management tool, they basically said people are only going to use this if they're dope sick and people use drugs for so many reasons. And so it was delivered the wrong way. The type of drug that was offered just tablet hydromorphone uh, at low dose ranges was not what people were asking for. People have been asking for diacetyl morphine or prescription heroin for years. They've been asking for compassion clubs, buyer's clubs. Uh, people have been asking for actual safe, regulated supply of fentanyl versus the fentanyl that they're taking, which is contaminated with all sorts of benzodiazepines. Uh, we tested a sample just a couple of weeks ago that contained carfentanil, fentanyl, etizolam, flurazepam, and lidocaine for some reason. And the combination of that of a short-acting benzo, a long-acting benzo, carfentanil, fentanyl. And then lidocaine, which has its own potential health hazard hazards embedded within it, just goes to show that people are being poisoned right now yeah. by the drug supply that they're being forced to access. And then coming out of the gate and saying, here's 12 tablets of hydromorphone, uh, is, it, it just pales in comparison to what people actually need. Right. Now, what Christy Sutherland and the Portland Hotel Society and Vancouver Coastal Health are doing with the... With the uh, model that was discussed today, that was revealed today, um, is very courageous that they're 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 trying because the truth about safe supply is that there is no one singular model or or option that's going to solve this horrific crisis of preventable death. the The answer is options people are going to need to know that they can go to a place and they could potentially buy it. They're going to maybe sometimes need to go see a doctor. Maybe they need to go to a dispensary like we've done with cannabis through, yeah. through legalization and regulation of cannabis. People need all of so that people need options when they have no money to just go to a consumption site. And instead of using their contaminated supply being offered an alternative right there with no strings attached. If we invest in options, then we might actually start to see a continuum develop where wherever you are in your substance use journey, you've got somewhere you can go that will prevent you from dying and give you the opportunity to work on whatever else is important in your life. So I think what's happening in Vancouver today uh, is really exciting because it's another model. It's another option that needs to be explored and invested. It is still medicalized and we need all full investments going towards demedicalized options. Mm -hmm. We need to acknowledge that lots of people don't need to or want to see a doctor uh, and putting that barrier in place actually prevents a large amount of accessibility.
1: Yeah, and and nor do I think we should be uh, putting the the pressure on docs to be responsible or be liable in these cases because uh, I mean, our, our doctors are already you know, the, the amount of stuff they've got on their plate, uh, I, can, I can see how even if they had the, uh, the wherewithal, I mean, look at how they're treating them normally just with, uh, with uh, prescribing for pain. I mean, they can't, to, to put somebody on a narcotic right now, they've got to do an extra, you know, half an hour's worth of paperwork. And uh, then that patient is all, the liability is all piled on them. And, and I, I understand why they, they are shying away from it. That's thought something uh, we were talking about earlier was we were wondering if this was to be successful and we were optimistic and we did move to a more progressive model, would it follow the same trajectory as what happened with cannabis, where it was kind of the the medical side of it was uh, kind of the first access point. And then once that had been addressed, it was finally with enough evidence or whatever. You, I mean, we've always had the evidence, but Whatever it takes, I guess it's, it's the politics needed to be uh, proper, or the timing need to be right, but uh, eventually it moved on to a, you know, where it's along the lines of alcohol where it's a recreational consumption.
2: Yeah, you know, a lot of drug policy changes go through a very awkward, inaccessible, medicalized transition phase. I was working in a physician's clinic when cannabis was prescribed by doctors. It didn't make any sense for doctors to be prescribing cannabis, especially the doctors who weren't going in it to try and like make a capitalistic venture off of it. The doctors who were just working in family physician offices, they didn't want to prescribe it. They also didn't want to be a barrier to it. It just didn't make sense. Right. And then, and then cannabis clinics opened and that was kind of weird. I don't know if they still run those maybe, but now we see access, and we see what it looks like through an accessible, regulated model, um, where people. There just a just a month ago, there or there was a recall on cannabis because there was a moldy batch, and mm. they were able to track and regulate that supply and prevent people from getting sick from consuming it. So, in essence, by the regulation, they've made it safer for everyone to consume it, yeah. and those dispensaries still have regulations and controls in place. There's still age limits. There's still things that are in there to safeguard unintentional harms. Is it fully uh, something that you can can completely eliminate? You can't with alcohol either. There are still concerns. There are still accidents that happen. There's still health consequences of chronic alcohol consumption. But if we go back to the days when it was prohibited and people were going blind by toxic wood grain alcohol supply, we've made a lot of steps towards improvement. Yeah, if you look um, at nicotine replacement therapy, uh, that used to be prescribed by a doctor. If you wanted to get on the patch or the inhaler, uh, which which is a safe supply of tobacco of nicotine, uh, you needed a doctor's prescription, and that didn't make any sense either. I remember having to do no. pulmonary function tests with people and make them breathe in tubes to determine their lung capacity before they could go on a patch, and. Yeah. Now, through a public health model, you can go to a pharmacy in BC, fill out some paperwork, and you fall into category A, B, or C, and that gives you a certain amount of nicotine covered by the province. Mm-hmm. We should do that, too, with opi- opioids.
1: Yeah, I, I guess maybe that's the, the tough part for people to understand is it uh, the way we've been kind of bombarded or, or molded by our culture is that uh, we've got these illegal drugs that are somehow different or uh, more dangerous, or, you know, they've they've kind of, they've villainized it to the point where it's almost like another category. But if you're looking at it in reality, there is no difference between these things. You've got uh, coffee, you've got nicotine, you've got, there's a wide array of things that people use to uh, either for recreational purposes or to get through their day. This is a reality of being a human being. So moving towards a model where those things are accessible, especially in this bizarre time where we've got almost seven people dying a day um, because of the, the only thing they can get their hands on is, is toxic uh, fentanyl.
2: Yeah, I mean, like people don't want to support a safe supply because the stigma around fentanyl is that it's killing people, but fentanyl is killing people because of the criminalization of certain drug use and the you know the iron law of prohibition states the harder the enforcement the harder the drug and so we're with our own shitty policies making these drugs less safe for people and then using that as an argument not to provide a safer version of it
1: it's, it's a self-fulfilling
2: prophecy where everyone just continues to lose in the end
1: sentinel so- was was basically a byproduct of of more policing you know, like and so was make-
2: primarily a byproduct of of the the war on oxys. Yes, which again about physicians, just a few years back, they were being blamed mm-hmm. for substance use disorder and overdose because of overprescribing of oxycodone, and a short time later, we're telling them we need them to prescribe liberally these types of medications as a means to reduce instance of overdose and they're probably thinking in the back of their heads when is this going to come back on me and when am i going to be the villain again yeah and it's yeah it's just it's a really short-sighted lacking context way of looking at things but it is definitely one of the biggest uh drivers for prescriber hesitancy
1: totally understandable again and we were discussing this before the podcast how difficult it must be for doctors uh you know, they look today, they wake up and they look, and now here's this guy going and he's buying fentanyl and powdered for him from a pharmacy with a prescription. And he's like, okay, we're the doctors are saying we're back to this again. Like what, what the hell is going on here?
0: So Corey, has there been any transparency in British Columbia around folks that were put on prescription PO dilaudid, uh, and given, given this, supposed safe supply for a period of time during the pandemic, who who then went and and sought to supplement that and, and overdosed? Has there been any data on that?
2: The BCCDC c- completed some preliminary evaluation of risk mitigation guidance, uh, and they noted that um, less than 0.4% of people who had been prescribed risk mitigation guidance prescribing, which is the tablet diluted using BCCSU's guidelines, uh, less than 0.4 percent of them had died, and those that did die had also uh, been using fentanyl in addition to that. And so, it's not tablet hydromorphone that's killing people in droves in BC and abroad. And there are other tab- tablet hydromorphone programs outside of BC too mm-hmm. uh, that have been happening in small pockets. That's not killing people. Uh, the the illegal, volatile, and unpredictable supply is what's killing people and so there's all of this trepidation about Well, what, what would happen if this person sells their tablets what would happen if this person sells their pills well that means somebody else isn't going to access fentanyl that's a form of community harm reduction right there mm-hmm. right and but that that doesn't equate to removing the liability experienced by prescribers as well You know, that's a public health way of looking at things. We know that sometimes people are going to sell their pills. We know that sometimes people are going to make an exchange. Uh, It's not always someone's capitalizing on your prescription. Sometimes it's situational. People have things in their lives and all of a sudden they need to make money or something like that. Um, but but the, the province completed a, a, an ethics analysis about this type of prescribing and they actually hired a clinical uh, ethicist to talk about all of these different uh, various, you know, ethical dilemmas and unequivocally he came out saying there's still a moral obligation to do this type of work, even if the person sells their pills, somebody else is going to end up not relying on the toxic drug supply even if you don't witness the person take it, you should still prescribe it. And it's because contextually speaking, we're in a much different place than we were when we people were blaming doctors for Oxy prescribing. We're in a place now where overdose deaths are so high and continuing to increase at a rate that's like, the sirens have been going by the window since I've started this recording with you. And most of those are probably overdoses.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, what do we, I mean, at this point, um, I know there's we see some positive things that are happening and we see some trending in the right direction. Um, as somebody who's who's been involved in this type of work and has been in the front lines for a while, can you tell us uh, if you had a magic wand type of situation type of scenario where you had all the resources and authority to do whatever you wanted? What kind of a setup do you think would get us out of this jam the quickest
2: yeah I mean if I had if I had a magic wand there would be a lot of things different for sure but listening to people who use drugs and and people with lived and living experience of, of criminalization due to their drug use means that the most important thing is that we are We are uplifting what they're saying and what they're saying is that they want to see faulty criminalization of people who use drugs they want to see expungement of criminal records for people who have been harmed by the war on drugs they want to see legalization and regulation of substances so that things like compassion clubs have open doors to start operating so that dispensaries could exist And if we do that, plus some really important pieces like shoring up Canada's horrible mental health system and improving access to housing, affordable, safe housing for people, culturally safe housing, livable wage, food security. You know, it's not just just drug use that's killing people and, and it's not just these small things that are driving people towards drug use. We have some big cracks in our system in this country. And a safe supply of drugs is one small piece of a whole menu of options that we need full investment in and urgent investment in if we want to see some meaningful improvement.
1: Agreed. Yeah, that's a, that's a great answer. Um, I mean, I, I hope we can, I, I don't know if we can solve all of those problems ever, but uh, if we could even get a few of them under control, I mean, the main thing I think we we are obligated to look at closely is uh, is the the problem of of the amount of just the, the people who are dying. That's that's what we've got to get under control first. Uh, we've got to get our our uh, our supply stabilized somehow so that this isn't continuing or continuing to to increase. Um, the rest of the, the social issues and stuff like that; those are you know long term things that may or may not work out, but they and they are they're all connected i understand what you're saying it's uh it's tough to parse it out but uh um so when you're doing this uh i, I think you've done as a healthcare professional you're doing obviously uh um stuff related to to nursing itself but you you're also kind of uh, an activist for safe supply what kind of uh, what has worked as far as getting changes to actually happen in a meaningful way. And what kind of hurdles uh, or pushback have you faced as far as uh, running into governments who, who just want to shut you down immediately?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think one of my top learnings is that you can uh, engage consult and advocate until the end of time and try to win people over. You can employ all kinds of important strategies like the positive deviance approach and bring in your naysayers and co opt them so that they become champions for a new initiative. But direct action has been the most effective. The government for all intents and purposes is not going to save us. Uh, they're not going to show up and suddenly be like, you're right, the war on drugs was wrong. We're gonna defund the police. We're gonna do this and that. We need to see direct action and so some of the most effective ways that drug policy changes and innovations in the overdose crisis have emerged, have been from primarily people with lived and living experience taking the risk to open something and to just do a thing in the absence of action of larger institutions and organizations. Stories of insights early days and how consumption sites first started, how needle dist- uh, needle distribution programs started up, none of that came out with the full carte blanche of the government, it came out with people taking the chance. Oftentimes people mobilizing the power and privilege that they have in order to make that change that change happen, Uh, and the same thing happened like with the, the way that our program started here in Victoria. When the risk mitigation guidance documents first were rolled out, it was myself and another nurse in a homeless encampment just calling all of the doctors we had in our contact list on the phone. And asking which one of them would be willing to try and prescribe someone a safe supply, and then trying to develop a network of those doctors so that we can grow the practice a little bit. It was lucky that we received funding so that we could actually formalize the process. But it started early on with a cell phone and 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 just lots of individual advocacy and the decision to do this now with or without funding, Mm -hmm. and, and and to see what happens because governments will also they will they will uh, sanction something and then they will take it away. And you only have to see what happened to Crosstown Clinic. They had to go to the Supreme Court uh, because the the Harper government was trying to shut them down. Uh, Insight, the Harper government tried to shut them down, uh, but they couldn't because they started it anyways. And people were using it and people were benefiting from it and lives are being saved. And so then the government couldn't take it away. And, and so it's the most difficult thing because it means assuming risk, Mm -hmm. but it is likely the the most effective means of advocacy that I've experienced.
1: Yeah. That, that seems to check out as far as what I've, I've seen as well. Um, uh, Just for our listeners and uh, myself included, I'm assuming that by, lived in uh, lived experience or lived in experience, you mean people who have used substances or been around environments where substances are being used? Is that what you uh, are referring to?
2: Yeah, people with, with lived and living experience of criminalized drug use, of being criminalized for that drug use, of experiencing intersecting factors, including chronic mental health challenges, including poverty, homelessness, um they 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 understand the solutions best because those solutions are intended for them and the mantra of nothing about us without us is, is a really important thing to park in the back of your head because so often you will go into policy meetings you will go into really important decision making meetings about a certain population or about a certain community and there is zero representation or inadequate representation from that community and those are the programs that end up flopping those are the ones that nobody benefits from or nobody accesses it. And, and that's because it wasn't designed or led by the people who are most impacted by it. It's a, it's a concept that extends beyond beyond substance use and the toxic drug supply, you know, with uh, people who have uh, disabilities that like they need to be involved in, in designing and implementing programs that affect them. Um, if we don't do that, then we're gonna continuously cycle through failed interventions.
1: Yeah, this, they seem to cart out these type of approaches almost aggressively when they want something, uh, they're trying to, to stop something from moving forward, or, or they're trying to stymie a process where they'll get uh, many people involved who have the authority to make decisions regarding regulations, and, it, and very few of them have actual experience in the, the very problem that they're trying to regulate.
2: Absolutely. Uh, as, a, as a nurse, as a very privileged white settler in stolen lands working in drug policy reform, uh, everything to do with my work has to be grounded in the, the feedback and experience of people who are actually impacted by this crisis and who are impacted by it daily. Otherwise, you will tokenize people, you will produce ineffective outputs, uh, and ultimately cause more harm in the long run.
1: Interesting.
0: How do you how do you prevent that from on a govern on a higher level on a government level? Do we within that within the community of of drug users is there is there a feeling or is there a sentiment that this is just sort of tokenizing that this is the government looking to looking to improve the optics or is there is there a good discourse is there good engagement?
2: I think that there are some really powerful and effective advocates from drug user organizations, there are some really effective organizations like the Canadian Association of People Who Use Drugs, like Van Do, uh, there's all kinds of organizations out there, Western Aboriginal Harm Reduction Society, uh, who are more and more involved in the process of policy change of program development. But quite often, governments still employ tokenizing tactics. Quite often, they are looking to check a box. And as someone who has privilege and is involved in some of these conversations, if I'm looking around the table and there is not adequate representation, I need to full stop right there and tell them that that needs to change. And if it doesn't, then that's not something that I can be a part of and people need to be prepared to vote with their feet. Um, because if you have privilege and you're working in the sector, you've got to make space and you have to find a way to uplift those voices uh, who are most impacted by the issues you're discussing.
1: Yep. Yeah. Hell yeah. Great answer. We see that uh, me and uh, Corey Williams have been talking about, uh, how politicized everything is right now and how politicized even this issue of, uh, of safe supply consumption uh, all the way back to needle exchanges. Um, It's, it's, it's too bad that, that, that has to be. And I wonder if we'll ever get to a point where we're able to look at these things pragmatically without, uh, you know, just from a almost a, a rational viewpoint where it's, uh, objective truths: What's actually helping people? What's not? And uh, implementing programs that that work towards that end, without all the extra, you know, attachments of uh, your identity as a this or a that politically. But um, what uh, what kind of stuff did you see in uh, Alberta? Like as far as contrast there. Uh, with policymakers versus what we, what you see in BC?
2: We had four years of an NDP government in Alberta where the keys to innovation were provided and uh, it was a relatively... Uh, pain-free process of approaching the government and a collaborative opportunity to uh, drive change forward. But it was incredibly short-lived. And what really became aware to me, at least working in Southern Alberta, was that there for every single person that can listen to this podcast and nod their head and say, hell yeah, there's another 50% of the population that's saying, fuck this guy. And, and he's enabling and uh, that is deeply entrenched within subcultures, within this country we are taught that drugs are bad. The media will tell us that drugs are bad and people who use drugs are bad. The police when I was in in high school and middle school came to our school for the dare program and they made jokes about people who use drugs. And then they held up an egg and said, this is your brain. And then they smashed it on the ground dramatically and said, this is your brain on drugs. And this is what people grow up believing and uh, until we can really get to the root causes of the drug war, which is racism and colonialism and all of these things that are embedded within a lot of systems in Canada, we're going to really continue to see uh, a general pushback on this type of innovation, even if the evidence is there. If you look at what's happened with the pandemic, uh, it it's really highlights the fact that people aren't always interested in science. Uh, and actually, that science can be, can be demonized and can be viewed as, you know, just another leftist institution to oppress certain people or to push forward agendas. Uh, and all of that stuff is really ingrained in a lot of, of folks here in this country. And so it's not just going to be resolved through awareness campaigns, which you'll always see these different Health authorities or governments put out ads about how fentanyl is bad and it will kill you. Everybody knows that there's fentanyl in the drug supply. Everybody knows that people are dying by toxic drug supply. Awareness alone is not effective in preventing what's happening right now. If we want to see an end to these types of stereotypes and the stigma and the discrimination, we have to attack the law that's causing it. People feel empowered to discriminate against people who use drugs because of the illegal nature of that drug use. And if it wasn't made illegal, there would be uh, more acceptance over time, much as there were with uh, things like alcohol and cannabis.
1: Yeah.
0: Corey, I wanted to ask you about um, about northern communities. That's something I still, you know, a couple of years ago, particularly, you know, after Trudeau was voted in. We were starting to hear that this was going to that, that we were going to, you know, build the bridge with the with the north on this particular issue that we're talking about. I don't hear discussion there about about harm reduction, about safe supply. You hear about the, the dire effects of of alcohol prohibition in some communities, but is are there are there gains being made? Are there are there things that are moving in the right direction in northern communities in this front?
2: Oh. To find the right direction, uh, drug trends uh, happen over time in in Canada, and so while Vancouver's downtown east side was the epicenter of fentanyl poisoning, and, um, and 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 likely because it's also the site of of the first criminalization of drug use in Canada. Um, You know, so those those issues tend to come there. It's also a port city and then larger urban areas are impacted by it. And you could actually see the trickle down effect happen uh, in in smaller rural and remote communities across Canada. And just recently, the Yukon government has declared overdose as a public health emergency. (coughs) So what we're seeing is that no community is left unscathed from it but the means in which these drugs enter communities happen at different times and in different ways. Yeah. Uh, and so fentanyl uh, has arrived in in most uh, jurisdictions in Canada now, but it definitely took longer. Uh, same with the, the East Coast and, and the Maritimes. Uh, it's there now. It <clears throat> wasn't there right when it was there in, in, in Vancouver. So. It's unfortunate because now that it has been declared a public health emergency, there has been more discussion and conversation uh, in the Yukon about a safe supply and about harm reduction. But up until then, it was quite quiet. And so once again, you see people being in a reactive state where they're waiting for this uh, train that we can all see bearing down on us to get really, really fucking close. And then we're going to start trying to figure out how to get off the tracks.
1: Yeah. yeah, I I just find it fascinating how I when you know back when this started in whatever it was 2016 and it started to become news how many people were were dying of overdoses and I thought at one point a couple of years ago uh, before the pandemic that that surely there must be a number you know there's got to be maybe when 10,000 people die maybe when 20 25 and i've realized since then that that there's never going to be a number that's going to change the way people feel about that situation if they have the idea in their head that those people are of less value or are dis- disposable and it doesn't matter because uh, you know it's not affecting me directly that kind of an attitude so at, although I mean, at this point, with the amount of people we've lost, you'd think that almost everybody in BC must have, you know, either either somebody close to them or, or removed once or twice, maybe at the most, who's either died or or been harmed in some way by this. But uh, looking looking into the future, if you can, um, what do you see happening uh, as we kind of transition away from? The uh, the COVID situation, and uh, we continue to d- struggle with this problem. Um, what do you think? Where do you think we're trending, and uh, where do you see us in five years?
2: In terms of the toxic drug supply, or in general?
1: <laughs> uh, <laughs> Let's stick to this drug supply.
2: <laughs> but I don't have I don't have that kind of crystal ball. I don't have any crystal ball. I do have history um, uh, to to lean on. And history has a tendency to repeat itself. And uh, my biggest concern is that as COVID starts to fade, or we push it into the fade because it's still happening, everyone, it's still happening. um, But as we choose to start to ignore it a bit more, uh, that there will be some belief of return to normalcy and less of a desire to concentrate our efforts on other issues like housing and the toxic drug supply. Um, I think people are pretty burnt out from bad news and and are pretty Mm -hmm. numbed to death rates and more statistics that show how bleak things are. And there is still so much moralizing of drug use that there is apathy embedded within our our politicians' decision-making process. Um, My my hope, uh, so not my crystal ball, but my hope, is that we can continue to drive change forward with uh, with a legal safe supply, with a regulated safe supply. My hope is that we do start to see demedicalized models where people can access uh, compassion clubs, where people can uh, go to regulated dispensaries, that drug checking services are more readily available to folks who need it. Uh, and truly, uh, my, my hope is that we actually start to see in the next five years some movement towards decriminalization. And I believe that conversation has been happening more and more frequently. I believe that there has been acknowledgement at the federal level that change needs to happen. There's been provinces applying for for exemption t- for decriminalization. There's been municipalities applying for decriminalization, micro decriminalization. It's all still fraught with issues and challenges, mainly the police being involved in most of those conversations. uh, But they are incremental steps towards where we need to get to. There is harms in incrementalism as well, half measures. uh, And there's the there's the potential that something sloppy gets put together. People decide it doesn't work. The new government comes in, change in ideology and we lose what we've what we've gained. Uh, And so it needs to be consistently framed around people who use drugs and what they're telling us. Uh, We can't actually settle on half measures. We can't, you know, let the government uh, compromise with us. We have to keep going back to them and saying, this is what we're being told is needed. So this is what we need to do.
1: Yeah. I I couldn't agree more with the, uh, the half measures uh, statement there. And I agree that it's, it's almost employed as a political tactic to concede a little bit of ground so that whatever project you're working on uh, to lend evidence to your cause fails and it fails because of the half measures not because it was a bad idea but then that gives the media an opportunity to you know reinforce the the old viewpoints that the, they were holding on to in the first place
2: it's eerily reminiscent of what happened with safe supply in bc you know, a uh, hyper-medicalized model framed under a withdrawal management approach, not super accessible to people. How come people aren't liking this? Look, we tried. Exactly. Let's go back to what we were doing yeah. before and pretend exactly. this never happened. That's super harmful. <clears throat> mm-hmm. And that's why we need to take that and keep blowing it out so that it does uh, become something that can't be taken away.
1: Yes. Agreed.
0: Well, well the, just to back to the this, the moral high ground stance that we so often see still here on a street level, still here at, at a dinner party, um, the stance that, you know, the quote, these people do it to them or they're doing it to themselves. Corey, what do you, and I don't, can't imagine that you run in a circle of people who would dare say that to you, but what do you say? Do you, how do, how do we as, as Empathetic people who who want to understand the issue, who are curious about the issue, who have loved drug users, who who have seen our patients, etc. How do you respond to that, to the, these people are doing it to themselves adage?
2: It's a logical fallacy because people aren't saying that for folks who have lung cancer because of smoking cigarettes, their you know liver cancer because of their alcohol use or diabetes related to lifestyle issues, everyone is deserving of health care. And uh, for some reason, uh, we are still so much more comfortable moralizing drug use. Yeah. Uh, but we will not apply that framework to anybody else. And that speaks to the stigmatization that comes from criminalization of people who use drugs, because we're not telling folks that they only get one shot on the AED if, if, if they you yeah. know, go down in a hockey rink. We're not telling people that they have to you know pay for all of their own chemo drugs. Like, why are we doing this for one group of people who are dying at an alarming rate? Uh, we're doing that because of stigma. And so, you know, I do actually often run into people who say things like that. I've left my car in my driveway and had someone walk up to me and say, oh, you just give people free drugs uh, as, a, as a way of starting a conversation point. And truthfully, I will engage sometimes, but more often than not, uh, it's not my job to, to educate every single person who wants to walk into a conversation like that. Uh, It would be great if we could change every single heart and mind, uh, but we would be spending decades and maybe still not getting there when we need to just be okay with the fact that some people are going to be awful to some people because they've chosen to, and because they haven't had a life experience that's changed them because they haven't had the education that they need because they haven't had the right thing, you know, relate to them. And, and we need to, we need to just be able to sometimes walk away from them and continue doing the work that we're doing.
0: The, the article, there was the devastating article about you and about an incident where you were providing naloxone and, and you were heckled. And, and I mean, so that's on the far end of the spectrum. You got to be a, ice cold son of a bitch to to be willing to heckle someone who's saving a life and to to be doing that in front of a, a person who's dying but i mean just for our listener to like that's the extent that this can go
2: yeah all i could think you know that person yelled out oh just let them die and all i could think was do you, could you imagine waking up From dying being resuscitated opening your eyes and that's the first thing that you hear is some person who's never met you before who doesn't know you just completely being okay with you not being here anymore and that is the reality that people who are victims of toxic drug policy here in canada face every single day is that there isn't just an apathy but there is a disdain Mm -hmm. Towards people who use drugs, uh, and it isn't grounded in evidence or reality. It's grounded in stigmatizing and moralizing and othering.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a great response. Um, you've uh, you've mowed through our questions and uh, answered them superbly, as if they were nothing. <laughs> I think you've pr- you've practiced these speeches a couple times, maybe.
2: I am uh, just really passionate about this, and I don't, I don't really have much of a life outside of this work. Uh, it's something that's important to me. It's something that people that I love and care about, I've lost. It's, um, yeah, it, it, it's, it's something that we need to talk about and need to be prepared to talk about. So I really appreciate the opportunity to be here and for all of your questions. Can um, I
0: ask you, Corey, how do you, how do you recharge? How do you self-care? How do you take off your take off this these hats at the end of the day?
2: Oh well, I mean, I wish I wish I was great at it. Um, I would say that I'm learning, and, and that many of us are, and um, part of being able to navigate just wave after wave of loss and and uh, grief is is to have a a group of solidarity folks who you can talk to and debrief with who do understand it this is not stuff that i go home and talk to my young children about this is not stuff that i you know am am prepared to share with people on a regular basis but i do have a group of people who do similar work uh who i can who i can have a little bit of of time to debrief and then to make space for them to debrief as well. And that's, that's a really important piece. Uh, and then other than that, um, my dog and cannabis maybe. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. Dogs are a gift. We don't deserve them.
2: No. Yeah. My, my, my golden retriever probably needs a therapist for all of the things I've, <laughs> I've trauma dumped on him. <laughs>
1: oh. um, yeah. I, I think that uh, we can leave you there as far as our questions are concerned. If there's anything you wanted to, uh, to get out there on, uh, on this podcast, please feel free to take some time to do that or anything that you want to uh, plug or, We're all ears.
2: No, I mean, I think if folks are more interested in learning about safe supply, I'd encourage them to go to the source and look at resources from Canadian Association of People Who Use Drugs to learn from people who use drugs in order to really uh, give yourself a fulsome idea of what's being asked and why it's being asked. If you want to see more access to safe supply, write to your MLA, write to your MP ask for demedicalized options for safe supply, ask for better options for housing uh, and make sure that, you know, if you do encounter that person at the dinner table or the neighbor, uh, know that you don't have to answer, but if you wanna do a small thing, correct them the next time they say something stigmatizing about a person who uses drugs.
0: Yep, that's great, Corey, thank you so much.
1: Yeah. thank uh- you. It makes me, uh, it gives me some hope knowing that, uh, that you're out there doing the type of work that you're doing. It's uh, tremendously important and I can see that you're, you're passionate about it. So, uh, taking the time to, to talk to us today is, uh, we're, we're very grateful and, uh, we wish you the best moving forward and we'll be keeping our eye on you.
2: The gratitude is all mine. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Thanks Corey for right. cheering me on. Okay guys, we'll, uh, see you next time. That's it. Okay, see you soon. Thanks.